to be a position of, uh, you know, can you hear me at the back? Uh, no, but I'll happily change places with someone who can't. Yes. Um, going through um, the, the writings of John in the last year, we started, as James has said, with John's gospel. And we had that great passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then we moved on to the first letter of John, where we learnt, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And then, as James said, we're doing a series on Psalms during uh, August. And so last week, Millie got Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity, for there God bestows a blessing So against this background of love and blessing and unity, you can imagine my joy when I discovered that I had been chosen to speak about Psalm 94, which says this. O Lord, the God who avenges, the God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, O Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the alien. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. Take heed, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who implanted the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches man lack knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows that they are futile. Blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, the man you teach from your law. You grant him relief from days of trouble, till a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will take a stand for me against evildoers. Unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. When I said, my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. Can a corrupt throne be allied with you, one that brings on misery by its decrees? They band together against the righteous, and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my fortress, and my God the rock in whom I take refuge. He will repay them for their sins, and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord our God will destroy them. Thank you. So following on from love, blessing, and unity, I get Psalm 94. It could have been Psalm 93, because that's the one before in the Bible in a year, which starts, the Lord reigns, he's robed in majesty. 
Or I could have even had Psalm 95, which is tomorrow's, which we know as the Venite. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. But no, I get, rise up, judge of the earth, and destroy the wicked. But you know, as I was preparing this talk, I realized that not only is God the judge of the earth, but that he judges in justice and righteousness. As Psalm 94 says, judgment will again be founded on righteousness. And it seems to me that unless we understand God's justice and his righteousness, we cannot really fully understand his love. It's as if God's justice and righteousness are the X and Y axes of the graph on which we plot God's love. His justice and righteousness is the framework by which we understand the extent of his love for each one of us. And it seems to me that a good starting point for the understanding of God's justice and righteousness is to remember that God created us, all of us, for a loving relationship with him. But if that was going to be a meaningful, loving relationship, he had to give us free will. We had to have the ability to choose to love God and to obey his commands, or to choose not to love him and to ignore his commands, because otherwise we would just be automatons going, I love God, I love God, I love God. The Bible is clear, however, that Unfortunately, we exercised our free will in the wrong way and we decided to ignore God and his commands and to do life our own way. Indeed, the essence of what the Bible calls sin is putting ourselves in the center of our own lives and ignoring God. We rebel against God and against his kingdom and instead we set up the independent republic of me, where I reign and I make the rules. And the Bible tells us that God is the judge of the world, and on that final day of judgment, the sentence for rebelling in this way against God will be eternity in hell. Now, the Bible doesn't actually go into great descriptions of hell, But it is quite clear that it is a place of severe punishment. The biblical picture is of torment, of wailing, extreme anguish, and eternal separation from God and his love. It's almost as if God says, okay, on earth, you chose, you exercised your free will, and you chose to live without me and without obeying my commands. So now I confirm the choice that you made, and for eternity, you will be separated from me. And I think it's hard for us to understand the horror of separation from God eternally, because on earth, we can never be entirely separated from God and from his love. No matter how dark and awful our position might seem to us, we still have the ability to turn back to God. You may remember the man who Jesus met on the shore of Lake Galilee who was possessed by so many demons, they called him Legion. And yet even those Legion of demons could not stop that man coming 
and kneeling before Jesus and finding forgiveness and release. To describe the torment of hell, the Bible often uses images of eternal fire. And just to take but one example, it's an example that God gave to the prophet Isaiah, but Jesus himself repeated when he was talking about hell. And what Jesus said, what God said to Isaiah was this, they will look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched. In our reading today, it is confirmed that God will judge and that he will destroy the wicked. And it's clear from the rest of the Bible that when God destroys, it is destroys into hell. And that's fine in one sense. Great. That's where the wicked should go. The problem is that in biblical terms, we are all the wicked. As the Apostle Paul put it when he wrote his letter to the Christians in Rome... There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Indeed, Jesus himself makes the point quite forcefully. He says that on the day of judgment, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? These are people who we might regard as the upright, the kind, the nice, the churchgoers. But Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So the starting point is, we have all rebelled, and when judge, God judges the earth, our sentence will be eternity in hell. Now, I've heard it suggested, oh, come on, God is a God of love. A loving God is not going to send people to hell. But that's to overlook that God is also a God of justice and righteousness. And letting people off their deserved punishment is not justice. If you take that approach to its logical conclusion, you end up saying things like this, oh, Poor Adolf Hitler, he had a difficult childhood, he had a bad relationship with his father, so we understand and he just ought to have probation. No, if justice is going to be administered properly, wickedness and rebellion cannot be overlooked. And you know, it's against that background that we now begin to see the amazing love of God, because God's desire is that none should perish, that all should come to eternal life with him. And so what he did was he himself became a man in the form of Jesus Christ. And although Jesus Christ deserved no punishment because he alone had not rebelled against God, he went to the cross and died and in his death, the penalty that justice demanded was paid by his death. There's an illustration which some of you may know. The, the two school friends who were great friends at school, and then when they grew up, they rather went their separate ways. And one did rather well and became a judge, and the other, unfortunately, fell the wrong side of the line and fell into a life of crime. And, of course, the inevitable happened many years later the criminal ended up in the dock in front of his former friend, the judge. And the judge imposed the full fine 
Because he had to do that because that's what justice demanded. But then he got down from the bench and he gave his former friend a check to pay it. Because that's what love does. Now, that's not a perfect illustration, but it gives us some idea. Hopefully it helps us to see that God's perfect justice and righteousness requires our death. But his amazing love, by becoming one of us, he has paid the penalty. So we need to come and make our relationship with the risen Lord Jesus who has died for us, so that on that day of judgment, he will say to his father, I know this one, he is one of mine, she is one of mine, they are covered by my blood. But as I started, I explained, we are created with free will. So each of us has to make a choice. Will we go to Jesus in repentance and ask for his forgiveness, or will we reject him? After all, the man in the dock didn't have to bank the check. He could just have thrown it away. Or do we say, oh, come on, look, I've got more important things on my mind than thinking about Jesus and salvation and all of these sort of things. I haven't rejected him yet, but I've got lots of time. I'll, I'll think about it, and at some stage I'll, I'll apply my mind to it. In April 1912, the ship, the Titanic, struck an iceberg and sank. She carried 20 lifeboats, which had a nominal capacity of just under 1,200 people. The sea was totally calm, so it would actually have been possible to overload those lifeboats and get in perhaps 1,500 or perhaps more. And as it actually took the ship three hours to sink, it would have been possible to have done a proper orderly uh, putting of people onto lifeboats. And although the lifeboats had a capacity of 1,200, only 706 people survived. And part of the problem was that people wouldn't get into the lifeboats. They were going, well, this is an unsinkable ship. Why do I want to get into some little open boat in the middle of the ocean? Things are fine where I am now. And of course, when they realized that they weren't fine, the lifeboats had gone. And you see, it seems to me that we can run the risk of having the same approach to Jesus. We might say, oh, look, I'll get round to looking at Jesus' claims sometime. I'm fine at the moment, though. Don't bother me at the moment. But the thing is, we don't actually know how long our lives are going to be. Now, look, in this talk, I've tried to get over what I understand the Bible says on the topic of judgment and salvation. But you don't have to take my word for it. Go and find a good modern version of the Bible and read it for yourself. Or get the Bible in a year app and listen to the Bible. Listen to what is set out there and make up your own mind. Because even if what a small part of what I'm saying is correct, can I suggest that it might be important to you? So let me conclude like this. Firstly... The Bible tells us that God will judge the world and he will judge with complete righteousness and justice and as a result he will send the wicked to hell. But God is also a God of love and in his, God, his love 
He has provided Jesus who died for us on the cross, thereby taking the penalty that should have been ours. But each one of us has to decide, do we turn to Jesus and accept the salvation that he offers, or do we reject him? But as the Bible starkly puts it, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation?